citizens of the internet, you've clicked on another episode of Off Grid with me, Dave. And me, Void. It's the Not Really About Crosswords podcast. We've been distilling a cryptic crossword from one of the dailies in the hope of brewing up a potent hooch of interesting stories from its ingredients. The puzzle we looked at this time around was by Philbert in The Independent on Sunday, number 1730, because the Sunday ones have a different numbering system to the other days of the week, dated April the 23rd, 2023. If you don't want spoilers from us, go and solve it first. Run around. Now! Otherwise, well, here we are. This sort of thing does, of course, necessitate the application of general knowledge, so as always, I'd better check. General, do we have you there? Uh, yep, I'm here. Glad to be here. Marvellous. Good to have you back. We'll have a quiz in a little bit from the General, but we've also picked one favourite clue from the puzzle, which we'll read to you first and then explain later how it worked. If you're not a solver, don't panic, or we'll become clear in a little while. So, General, what was your favourite clue, please? Well, I like to live in a cross, um, which was confusion west of Tripoli, as Rommel manoeuvred, nine letters. Um, which did you pick, Dave? Uh, I went for 28 across, which says, Scrap of pink paper that's a case for scrap collectors. Eight letters. And what was yours? Uh, my favourite was 22 down, steamed wheat that has no uses beside a browned foodstuff. Five letters. Okay, we'll come back to those in a bit. You can either try and work them out for yourself or ignore them studiously. That's fine. But now, General, which word have you picked out of the puzzle to have a chat about and why? Okay, I've, I've picked uh, 17 down, mincemeat. It's related to the clue I chose, which has a, a Second World War surface reading. Um, and um, mincemeat, or Operation Mincemeat, was a, was a famous operation uh, that was part of the Second World War, which the, the intention was to mislead the Germans into thinking that there was going to be an assault on Greece. And uh, Sardinia, it, I think. was. was and the, Sardinia, yeah, yeah. But the, the actual intended target was Sicily. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, was, that was my reason for, for choosing that, uh, just the connection with the other clue. Um, I'm also very partial to mincemeat. I make a decent mincemeat streusel. <laughs> <laughs> the sweet mincemeat. The sweet, the the sweet, yes, the sweet mincemeat, definitely. Yes, I don't, uh, I don't fancy any offal or um, sort of uh, <laughs> meat that's on the turn going into it. You, you do occasionally get people popping up on um, social media saying, uh, British people, saying, Oh my God! Have you seen this American? They've made mincemeat pies with actual meat. <laughs> Misinterpreting uh, what Britain yeah, well, thinks that's, mincemeat is. That's just is. a mince pie, yeah. But, yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's because of the common thing of words starting off with a generic meaning and then gradually kind of becoming more specific. And hmm. meat originally just meant any food, didn't it? Before it before it got narrowed down to animals. Oh yeah. Yeah, like um, phrases like "one man's meat is another man's poison." You kind of it doesn't mean meat, meat. It just means anything. Food in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah, hence, yeah. Hence words like sweet meat and things like that. Hmm. I can never remember which names of the various operations in World War Two apply to which actual operations. So, uh, uh -huh. are you about to tell us which operation this was, General? It was a uh, deception that uh, involved depositing um, a corpse off the coast of Spain 
And that corpse was supposedly a relatively senior officer in the uh, Marines. And on, about his person were various documents that had been planted by um, the intelligence services that suggested that it was correspondence to one of the commanders. I can't remember which one. Yeah, but it, it indicated that the Allies were planning to mount an assault on Greece and Sardinia. Um, when in fact their intention was to liberate uh, Sicily. So the, um, the idea apparently um, was rooted in something called a Trout Memorandum, which they have good reason to believe was written by one Ian Fleming. Oh, right. He was like the assistant to the director of naval intelligence at the time, wasn't he? Exactly, yeah. So yeah, he, he, he was uh, the sort of brains or the, the inspiration behind this, uh, this operation. But um, one of the, the tricky things was was finding a body for the operation. No volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> no, there weren't any volunteers. Um, and um, although there were plenty of bodies being in the middle of the war, uh, lots of casualties, both civilian and military, um, all, all these had to be properly accounted for. So the, the body that they used was of a homeless person. They, they were looking for someone who, who, who wouldn't be missed, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't it a tramp who'd He'd eaten poison. poison or something? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know is more it, about it than it I do, well- and I've read up about it. <laughs> <laughs> is it a Welsh person? Um, that rings a bell with me. I'm not sure. Lindauer Michael, I believe. So it sounds like a Welsh name. So you, yeah. Has this, um, this whole story, I've got the feeling it's been turned into a film quite recently. Certainly novelised and then the novel was filmed, yeah. There, there have been a number of um, books, certainly. I, I think there's one been made in, the, say, the past five years or so about, about this. Um, yeah, Operation Mincemeat, 2022 film with Colin Firth as Montague. Ah, there you go. One of the intelligence people. And okay. Matthew McFadden is the other leading sort of intelligence person. When I say within five, I mean one, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if someone had forced me, I might have said that Colin Firth seems like the sort of person he was likely to be in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Buttoned up army officer type. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's been there's been books. There was a, a book called The Man Who Never Was, which was written about ten years after the events. And wasn't one of the one of the trickiest things about it was that they had to ensure that the body would be found by the enemy in that they didn't they have to rely on tides taking the body a certain distance so they had yeah. to dump it in a certain place to make it look like a plane had crashed in a likely spot that's yeah, right and they- the sort of spanish authorities were supposed to be kind of nominally neutral but it was well known that they were likely to pass on anything they found there had been a previous incident so someone had crashed and the body had washed up on Spanish uh, soil, and certain documents, um, it became clear that documents that that guy had had about his person were, were leaked to the Germans. So, yes, they were indeed nominally neutral, but they were they were playing both sides, it seems. So I think the, um, the plan was to try to ensure that the body washed up in a certain area where they had a diplomat who was, who was quite switched on, and aware of the local situation. Right. Um, and also that there was a sort of German presence, or there, there were, there were sorry, Spanish officials that were sympathetic to Germany. Mm, um, right. So there was a sort of delicate uh, balance of, of trying to find a region where 
they could be confident that the documents would find their way to German, German yeah. intelligence. It's a very tricky situation, isn't it? Because you're going, right, well, if we think that he's going to do that, then we need to do this to make sure that he thinks that we think that, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Yeah, you don't want to to make it too obvious, but you want it to actually happen. Yeah, Yeah. the the writing of the documents, I think, was also quite a delicate matter. You know, it couldn't be too obvious somehow. It had to look plausible, but still convey a very clear message without seeming too obvious. Yeah. Hey guys, look over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tricky stuff, this warfare business, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Spies, who'd have them? <laughs> Ian Fleming. Okay. Cool. Shall we return to the uh, first of our choices of clues from the puzzle? Yeah, that's yours. It is mine. Yeah. 28 across. It said, if you recall, scrap of pink paper that's a case for scrap collectors. That was eight letters. Now, I think the key to this one was a common bit of crosswordese, which is that when you see the phrase pink paper, it tends to refer to the Financial Times because it's printed on pink paper and thence to its usual abbreviation, FT. So if we assume that that being a case for something means we have a container and contents clue, then you're looking for something meaning scrap collectors to go inside that. And that means the other bit of scrap in the start of the clue must be the definition. So you sit there trying to think of a word for scrap that begins with F and ends with T. And you fairly quickly find fragment. Whereupon you spot that the scrap collectors inside, therefore, must be ragmen, which is rather nice. I don't think people probably would have solved it by spotting ragmen first. Probably did it the other way around. Uh, Void, do you want to tell us about what caught your eye in the uh, grid? Yes, well, I've got a couple of branches to go down because I've picked the word olive, olive from branches. the grid. Hey, so first of all, I'd start with let's see where we stand. Olives, the fruit of the olive tree. Are we pro or anti? I'm no pro. I wasn't for a long time. It's a bit. I, I think olives are a bit like classical music. You sort of grow into them. <laughs> I, I've grown into classical music, but not into olives. So. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I lean towards anti. I can tolerate them at a push, but... I use plenty of olive oil, but that's about it. Yeah. Now, my girlfriend's pro, so any I encounter tend to go her way, which uh, which suits both of us, really. I much prefer green to black, I must say. Okay, maybe I should try again and see if I've grown into them. <laughs> <Not> sure. <laughs> but now I, I have another question, or rather two almost identical questions to start out with. Mm. Uh, The first being, how old is the olive tree? What are your thoughts? I mean, my thought is, what precisely do you mean by that? (laughs) uh, that, uh, Do you mean as like a a, a species of tree? Yeah. When when did they first appear? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not expecting you to know this, or even (laughs) if you have a guess, it might be anywhere near, but Go on, just just pick a number out. Of the... I don't even know when trees started to appear. Fifty million years ago. Okay, and Dave. Uh, I'm going to guess that it's a relatively recent. I mean, certainly the Romans and the Greeks had them, so let's let's say it's kind of four thousand years or something like that. Okay, general, you're a lot closer. We have quite <laughs> a range here, um, <laughs> according to uh, Wikipedia, which says that the species is twenty to forty million years old. Ah, well, um, 
But it had I... to be either very old or very recent, didn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, a, an adjacent fact which comes closer to your guess, Dave, would be that <laughs> the, the word for olive comes okay. from Latin via Etruscan and ancient Greek and ultimately Mycenaean, uh, which was Erawa in the Linear B script. Oh, so right. if you uh, if you swap an R for an L and a W for a V, you're more or less there. You're almost there. R's and L's often change places yeah. in histories of words. Yeah. Uh, so that puts the name back to the second millennium BCE. But uh, the earliest evidence of olive tree cultivation goes back to about 5000 BCE. So pretty old. Mm. And now I have the variant of the question that I asked you already, which is, I asked before, how old is the olive tree? Now I'm going to ask you, how old is an olive tree? So so the oldest living example of one. Yeah, that's where I'm going. 1,500 years would be my guess. Okay. Do single trees live that long? Some do. Yews are very old trees. Some some of them. I'm going to go younger. I'm going to say 1,000. Okay. Well, there was a tree in Athens which was known as Plato's olive tree because it dated to 2,400 years ago or so, which is when Plato founded his academy. I'm not liking the sound of the word was there. Yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, that tree... Tell me the local council did for it, did they? Uh... (laughs) Well, it might have been something operated by the local council because it was hit by a bus in 1975 and uprooted, which proved to be a terminal case, a bus terminal case. (laughs) But yeah, so that one was, I think, fairly solidly dated at about 2,400 years old. But there is a tree in Portugal that's still alive today with an estimated age of 3,350 years well, it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, which means it first sprouted before the Trojan Wars. So, mm, it's an amazing olive to tree think about things like that. Isn't it's it? pretty old. Yeah, I, there are quite a lot of other cases of olive trees that are at least believed to be over two thousand years old. And are they still productive? Do you know, does, does it say whether they're still producing olives? The the one in Portugal, I just read that it was still alive today. The one that got hit by a bus. It said that it still had a couple of shoots that were still sprouting, mm. so it was still living and growing at least in in some part. I'm not sure if it was still producing olives as such. Mm. Uh, the olive, along with wheat and grapes, was one of the three staples of the Mediterranean cuisine, especially in ancient uh, times, because you can you can eat the fruit, you can use the oil as salad dressing and in cooking. Uh, you can use it as a cleaning ointment, and it was commonly used as a lamp oil as well. So it was a really important crop. Multi-purpose. And of course, you can use the wood to carve anything that you fancy out of it. Anything you might make out of wood, you can make out of olive wood. And indeed, I have with me here an olive wood kendama, which I'm showing oh. to the General and Dave. Uh, a kendama is a sort of juggling toy. Japanese extreme cup and ball is what I call it. And I also have something which a friend of mine, hello Donald, found at a antique market. 
That's pretty. And he wasn't sure quite what it was. It's made of olive wood and it's got very nice grain patterns in right. it. Mm. We're not sure what its original purpose was, but it does work very nicely as a kendama stand. So I have this in my kitchen <laughs> with, uh, with one kendama stick up in it. My mum had a, had a boyfriend who he was Italian. And my mum lived in Italy for a number of years and um, he used to carve olive wood and made some beautiful things, some, a couple of things I still have. But he also used to use, um, talking about uses of olives, he used to use, he used to rub the oil into his hands as a sort of moisturiser. Right, yeah, yeah. Because he did a lot of manual work, but yeah, he used the oil as a, as a sort of moisturising treatment as well. Yeah, I think I've heard, heard that before. Yeah. Mm. The other branch that I was going to go down with olives is I was wondering about the use of olive as a name. Now, Olivia is very popular these days. I think it regularly turns up in the uh, most popular names given to baby girls, Mm -hmm. at least in Britain these days. But I can't really think of any famous olives who aren't cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I decided to look some up. But still, none really rang any bells with me. But I found one who I thought was quite interesting. Have you heard of Olive Thomas? Can't say I have. No, I'm getting no. blank looks. I'm not, I'm not surprised I hadn't heard of it either. Uh, she was a model and early silent film star. Oh, okay. Not remembered today, perhaps because she died young in 1920 from a rather horrible accidental poisoning, unfortunately. Ooh, so very early um, film star. Yeah, yeah. And that was <laughs> a little while after she'd eloped with and married Jack Pickford, who was Mary Pickford's brother. Right. Ooh. One uh, of the United Artists. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, she had 23 films to her name, Olive Thomas, not Mary Pickford. Again, none of which particularly rang a bell with me, but one was an early version of Tom Sawyer. Okay. And she was also in a film called An Even Break, which I was really hoping W.C. Fields would turn up in, but apparently no, <laughs> because of his catchphrase, never give a sucker an even break. Uh, yes. but she... And if he had done that, would have fitted nicely into last last episode as well. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but she was in a 1920s film, which popularised the term for a modern young woman of the day. So, any guesses at the title of that film? Blank looks again. Okay. The flapper. Yeah, what? Yes, The Flapper. Okay. And this film is now in the public domain, so I should be able to put it on the off-grid blog, so you can go and watch it there if you like. I've watched it, and it's not bad. It's all right. I particularly <laughs> enjoyed the humour in the... Uh, what do they call them? The text cards that come up between the scenes. Intertitles, yeah. Yeah, intertitles, yeah. That's the one. So there you go. The original Flapper Girl was an olive. Very good. <laughs> and no mention of Popeye's girlfriend all the way through the whole thing. Not at all. No. Right. In that case, General, how about you run through the passing of your choice of clue? Sure, yeah. So my clue was confusion west of Tripoli as Rommel manoeuvred. It's a nine-letter answer, and that answer is maelstrom. So the definition is confusion, and the way you arrive at that is west of Tripoli indicates the uh, leftmost or westmost letter of Tripoli, which is a T, and then you combine that with as Rommel and form an anagram indicated by manoeuvred, and that gets you to Maelstrom. Uh, so perhaps a, 
an easier clue than a uh, fragment to, to build up to the answer. So I, I certainly worked this out from the wordplay and then confirmed the definition. Nice. All right, Dave, uh, where are you going to start in this crossword? Yeah, well, you've already been kind of taking us linguistically back thousands of years, and I often start this section by looking at the history of a word. Mm-hmm. thought I'd step away from that this time. Instead, I'm going all the way down to the level of looking at the history of an individual letter. <laughs> it's because at 13 across, the answer was alpha, which, of course, we know as the Greek equivalent of letter A. But in itself, it's a sort of potted example of the evolution of, I was going to say the alphabet, but alphabets. Think about the family tree that leads us to our current alphabet i think the current understanding sort of goes something like uh, at the start you have egypt maybe egyptian hieroglyphs mm-hmm. it's a logographic writing system so not not an alphabetic system each pictogram represents a whole word or at least originally did yeah then around the 19th century bc you get the canaanites so that's the southern Levant, the sort of area that today is Israel, West Bank, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, those sort of places, um, speaking Semitic languages. Mm-hmm. And they start repurposing the hieroglyphs into a new script for their language, uh, in which the symbols now are not just representing whole words, but sometimes the initial sounds of words, in, so they can combine them and represent some other word. Okay. This sort of writing system tends to concentrate on the consonants, like Hebrew scripts does now. You know, so either the vowels aren't marked at all, or they're sort of demoted to diacritics. And there's a there's a word for that sort of script. It's technically an abjad. Okay. Uh, I did not know that. <laughs> in the same way that alphabet, as a word, comes from alpha and beta. Mm. All right. Abjad comes from the pronunciation of the first few letters of Arabic: Aleph, Bet, Jimel, Dalet, A, B, J, D. Uh, okay. So we have this set. There's a few inscriptions that kind of remain from these earliest scripts that the, the, the Canaanites were developing out of the uh, hieroglyphs. There's one uh, on a, a wadi near Kenna in southern Egypt which dates from around 18 to 1900 BC. And this has got a bunch of characters on it that are a sort of mix of hieroglyphs, like a little dancing man, and some of these earliest alphabetic symbols. And this script's currently known as Proto-Canaanite or Proto-Sinaitic. <laughs> well done. I have terrible trouble working out how to say that. <laughs> so you think... Amongst the hieroglyphs, there's a character for an ox, which is a picture of an ox's head. Yeah. It's like nice and representative. The Semitic word for ox was something like alp. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to alp you. I'm going to have to do this on yeah. my own. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the symbol, as they used it, then came to represent the uh sound at the start of that word. And it got the name aleph. Okay. Note also that the biblical Hebrew word for ox is elef. Uh, no, there is no link with elephant, I checked. Um, <laughs> Quite just in case anybody was wondering, going there. So as this script developed, you know, 
go over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the shapes of letters are going to sort of evolve and change and twist a little bit and get simplified. So the enclosed shape of the ox's head with its two horns got simplified and stylized. And by the time it had reached the Phoenician alphabet, which is getting towards around 1000 BC, the Aleph had tipped on its side. So the remnants of the ox were kind of facing left with the horns on the right. Phoenician then spawned and developed into subsequent languages like Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And the first letter of the Hebrew and Aramaic alphabets kept that name Aleph, but the shape morphed away from the enclosed kind of ox face shape to almost a sort of X-shaped letter that we know from the modern Hebrew Aleph. Mm. But Greek... While the name changed from Aleph to Alpha, if you think about a Greek letter Alpha, the lowercase one, it's more or less still got the shape. It's it's an enclosed shape on the left with the pair of horns on the right, which are like the... Mm. Yeah, it's a little more rounded-faced ox. But, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you can then see that the lowercase uh, Latin alphabet A that grew out of that is clearly derived from it and we've just kind of straightened that right hand side out from horns into a more or less a straight line mm. yeah uh, and if you turn our capital a upside down well this is what i was going to say if you go right. back to the phoenician aleph and you rotate it even further until the horns are at the bottom there you see the origin of the uppercase alpha which then becomes the latin a as well and the a equivalent in cyrillic alphabet as well mm. yeah there are other letters that similarly show their history. The Egyptian hieroglyph for water, which I think you can probably bring to mind already, it's a horizontal wavy line mm -hmm. uh, representing waves on the water. Yeah. And the Phoenician word for water was mem. Mm -hmm. And so when they made a simplified version of the waves hieroglyph for their script, they called it mem. And he used it to represent the first sound of that word, which was m. <laughs> and that's where we get our letter M from, because that's a wavy up and down horizontal line, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so uh, I think there have been so many attempts to do spelling reform in English over the centuries. I, I'm just kind of proposing that we should respell ox. From OX to like, I don't know, AUX or AUCHS or something. Just to <laughs> close the loop and re-establish the connection with the letter A. Yeah. Have you heard that uh, question, I suppose it is, what does, what does G-H-O-T-I spell? Ah, uh, yes. I think this was Bernard Shaw, wasn't it? I think possibly this was his yes, spelling of I believe so. with right. yeah, foot as in enough and ear as in women and so on, yeah. Yeah, shun yeah. as emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think one of those early Phoenician or earlier letters was the word for, or was the the pictogram for a house or a home, and that I think that became the B. It did, yes. The bet bet was their word for a house. Yeah, mm. that's it. Yes, yeah. because if you think of Bethlehem, I think the bet. Yeah, in that comes from a house or home. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, so it starts off as a kind of enclosed square, and then it just gradually ends up with a line up the side of it, and you're going to, there's there's your B developing. Yeah, spell binding. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Anyway, Void, you had a clue to tell us about. 
I do. I chose 22 down as my favourite, and that was steamed wheat that has no uses beside a brown food stuff. Now, I think we commented before that when you see an article, an an or an a or a the, you can often be quite suspicious about that because you could probably rewrite the clue in headlinese to not bother having it. So why is the a there? So a is a. Now, what about the rest of it? Steamed wheat is the key to this one. (laughs) The thing that this is representing... I'm not really sure I knew exactly what this thing was. It is no, a food. Me it yeah. is a food stuff. I thought it was a type of grain on its own, but apparently, mm. couscous is steamed wheat, or, or the dish couscous can be reasonably described as being steamed wheat. Now, what about the rest of it? Steamed wheat that has no uses beside a brown food stuff. Well, it took me getting the letter A filled in the grid in a crossing clue, that the A was the last of these five letters. And so that meant that brown food stuff was the definition. And it wasn't until I got another C crossing that I realised that the answer probably had to be cocoa, C-O-C-O-A, because that's a brown food stuff. But it was only through then thinking of couscous and thinking, but why is it has no uses? You've just got to get rid of the US and the U. Oh, it doesn't <laughs> say uses. It says US is. So us is. It, it has no us is in it, which is a very sneaky lift and separate device, <laughs> which I've said before, I like. So the answer is cocoa, a brown food stuff. Couscous without its us is, is cocoa beside A. Yeah, clever clue. What a clue. Okay, it's quiz o'clock. General, what have you got for us? Uh, Following your instructions to the letter, I looked for words in the grid to provide inspiration. So my easy question is, name the Ivy League institutions, referencing 23 across in the crossword, Ivy League. Oh, all of them? Hmm. Oh, well, the first thing is knowing how many there are then, aren't there? I think there are either seven or nine. Dave? Mm, I'm going to start by throwing a couple. We've got Yale and Cornell. Okay, Harvard Mm, Harvard. and Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, Princeton? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, Oh, it gets tricky now, doesn't it? I'm not sure I'd have got Brown. Uh, Brown's tricky. Harvard and Princeton, Yeah. yeah, but... Brown's tricky. Oh, there's, there's another one trying to come through my brain. Were you looking for eight? Oh, eight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so on average, I was right. MIT is not one of them, is it? That's too new. It's not, no. Yeah. No, it went through my mind and I dismissed it, yeah. Do you want some initials perhaps at some point? or Are any of the three so well known that we should be remembering them? Or, or are these three of the more obscure ones? Um, do you think? I think you've got the obvious ones, yeah. Uh, well, Brown, I think, was was tricky. I mean, I'm sure you'll have heard of these institutions. Um, yeah. But they're well, not... G- give us some initials, then. Okay, there's um, another C. There's a D. And there's um, a P. Is the D Dartford? No, that's oh. east of London. <laughs> <laughs> I did think there was an American one. Hang, hang, hang. But, but you, Dart, 
Dartmouth. Dartmouth, well done. Oh, yeah. okay. So another C and another P. Oh, no, I, I don't think I'm going to get there. I'm not sure I'd have got these two, actually. One is University of Pennsylvania, UPenn. Okay. Which oh, is okay. which is a, certainly a, a very, very strong uh, university academically, but I didn't realise it was Ivy League. It was Ivy League. Yeah. Is no. that the one that's also referred to as Penn State sometimes? No, they're oh, different that's... institutions. There's, oh, okay. there's U, UPenn and Penn State. Okay. Uh, and the, the, the other C is Columbia. Oh, okay. Okay. Is that now or has it ever been a women's college? No. Because my supplementary question was, what are the Seven Sisters? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, so... No, the the, the Ivy League institutions were originally all male and and seven colleges were set up to cater for for women in the early days. I mean, most of them now are are co-ed, but but do you know any of the Seven Sisters? Oh, now, what's that line from Dorothy Parker? (laughs) Uh, Ah, yes, okay, it's... If all the girls from Vassar were laid end to end, I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> so is it Vassar? Vassar is one of them. Yeah, that's probably well, well, well recalled. That's probably the best best known one, I would say. I might have dredged up two or three, and Vassar would have been one of them. But I certainly wouldn't have got all of them. Damn it! And I've got my my Dorothy Parker bookies just out of reach on my le- from my left arm there. But uh... I, I don't think she has subsidiary quips for the other six. No, quite, yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, I, I certainly couldn't name the others, no. So there's Barnard College, Bryn Mawr, which I had heard of. Oh, Bryn Mawr I have heard of, yeah. yeah. Mount Holyoke, again, news to me. Um, Smith College, not one I'd heard of. Wellesley, I had heard of. Wellesley College. Wellesley, as in Sir Arthur. W, um, I'm spelling, I'm not sure. It's, this one's got three E's in it. W-E-L-L-E-S-L-E-Y. Uh, Vassar and then Radcliffe uh, were, the, were the seven sisters, the, the female colleges. Well, I might have heard of Radcliffe. Yeah, that vaguely rang a bell with me, but um, certainly they're, they're not as a group as famous as the, the Ivy League ones. Um, no. Ones to remember, though, quizzes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, is it time for my second question? I think and that so. was the easy one, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to know because I don't know what your, your sort of interests are. So, the, the second one might prove to be trivial. So, 14 Across was Orb. So, my second question was what is the Orb's best selling single or best known single? Oh, right. Um, yes. You see, the well, band The Orb. The band, the band, the old. That's that's voids really. <laughs> okay. not, not not your um, strong suit, is it? Uh, does it feature sample spoken samples from a female singer? It does. Yes. Being interviewed about her early life. Wow, this is good knowledge. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, her name was Ricky Lee something. Jones? Well done, yes. Yeah. That was one of my supplementaries. <laughs> ah, yeah, you okay. see, music questions for me really have to be about film scores, otherwise I'm not going to get them. <laughs> uh, she was asked, what were the skies like when you were younger? Yeah. And she said, oh, they were, I can't remember the exact quote apart from the title, but they were great rolling skies full of little fluffy clouds. That's the one. 
I've got the the Orb album that's that that is on, and um, I couldn't have told you who the singer was. Yeah, I'm impressed you could uh, f- uh, get Ricky Lee Jones from that. Uh, there's a parody of it as well. Is it? That. No. I, can't, I can't remember who it's by. But it's some band from the north of England, and they oh, say, "What were the skies like when you were younger?" <laughs> and the guy just just says, "Grey, yeah, grey." <laughs> I told you they were grey, they were grey skies. <laughs> yeah, well, having been to University of Manchester, I, I know I know uh, what he's talking about. It dri- yeah. drizzled all the time, or, or seemed to. I'll have to look that one up and uh, put it in the blog. So, um, when do you think this was released? I was staggered when to 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 read the year in which it was released. Hmm. Well, I'm going to narrow it down first of all to between eighty-five and ninety-five. I think probably somewhere in the middle of that range. I'm going to say 91. Should have taken the average. 90? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> but pretty good, pretty good. But can you believe it? Over 30 years ago. It's, you know, if you hadn't phrased it as, mm. as, as it being a slightly surprising answer, I might have gone a bit later, sort of 94 or 5. But I guess it ties in with with the music of the time, actually, in you know, Summer of Love in the sort of late eighties. And um, yeah. if, you stop, if you stop and think, you probably would come come down to sort of early nineties. Yeah, eighty seven was the, the so called second Summer of Love, wasn't it? Because it was twenty years after Sergeant Pepper was released. Oh, was it? Oh, right. Okay, I was trying to remember. I was thinking it was eighty eight, but I'm sure I'm sure you're right. My favorite, uh, not my favorite. My final question then. <laughs> um, Based on probably is your favourite question as well, isn't it? Yes. No, I, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I like them all. Uh, so, <laughs> so, based on three down, who directed the 1938 film Olympia, and what is its subject? Is Ooh. this like a Lady Reefen style or something like that? Oh, this is your specialist subject. I was about to say, it's like <laughs> to you, Dave. It is has indeed. He, got it in one? he has, it is. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so it was probably the, the Olympics, I would have thought. Oh, oh it is yeah. the Olympics. We're getting a nod. Yeah. 1936 Berlin Olympics, yeah. See, I was wondering if it was going to be, um, well, darker and going back to Nazi ideology because they. Mm. trace their their sort of so-called Aryan superiority via Norse myths and mm-hmm. Nordic and Norse myths, don't they? She might have been going down the god route with that. But no, it's the, the Olympic Games. No, so, just just the Olympic Games, yeah. Propaganda vehicle, really. But, mm. but apparently um, a, a hugely innovative uh, film in terms of the techniques it employed. Yes, uh, despite her employers, as it were, I think she was regarded as a pioneering filmmaker. Yeah, mm. I think there have been some attempts to rehabilitate her as a innovative filmmaker, but I think she's inevitably, think irrevocably tainted. I think the film's admired rather than... Uh... <laughs> For, for, for its techniques, like, yeah. For, yes, for its techniques, yeah. Have either of you seen it? I've, I've not seen it. I haven't. No. Didn't she live to be a hundred, Lenny Riefenstahl? Am I imagining that? Uh, I don't know. Let me have a. No, let's look that up on all, shall we? Dave furiously typing away. She did indeed. Yeah. Hundred and one, in fact. Born August nineteen oh two. Died September two thousand and three. Yeah. 
Well, well done, her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that covered a lot of ground. Okay, folks, our bloated corpses are now washed up on the shore of full time, so it's time to release our definitely genuine information, which is that you have been listening to Off Grid. Details of today's waffle can be found at offgrid.tlmb.net, along with, as usual, links to previous episodes and methods of getting into contact with us, should you so wish. An internet search for Skirwingle will in all likelihood reveal my presence on any social media you like, along with my crosswords. Oh, and my book of cartoons, which you should definitely all order. <laughs> it's only taken you 34 episodes to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're good. Uh, you can also find me at the void TLMB in various places. My blog is at tlmb.net slash blog, where I post a monthly crossword along with a video, short video explaining how all the clues work. So if you're relatively new to cryptics, that might be helpful to you. And if you want to hire me to start a crossword for you, get in touch. Ooh. General, do you have any recommendations for us this time around? Yeah, sure. You, you might like to check out uh, puzzles by Serpent or Basilisk um, or Jack. In the Independent, the FT and the Guardian, respectively, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. We shall do that. Thank you, General. Thank you. So much for your help once again. Pleasure. Uh, meanwhile, listener... See you again, fingers crossed. Bye. Yep. Bye. Sorry, everybody. Off Grid is a TLMB production. Thank you to Philbert and the Independent for the crossword, and to the Trudy for just a little bit of Volcano Fola Ferret. Hi to our new listeners in Hong Kong and the Philippines. Welcome aboard, folks. And a special hello goes out to W.Y. King, or is that... Viking, I'm not sure, who was awesome enough to leave us a very nice review on Apple Podcasts. Since this is the last show in this series, why not take the time to catch up on any back episodes you've missed and then follow in Viking's footsteps and leave us a review and a rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you can. It would really help us to get the word out about the pod and it might encourage us to make some more episodes as well. As ever though, thank you very much for listening. You're the best. See ya. I had so many books open and, and browser tabs open trying to <laughs> weave all those history together.